Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. And I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. Today, we decided to do something a little different. Kaylee and I hosted David Jagan and Abdul Abdirahman from F Prime Capital to discuss F Prime and their recently released annual state of fintech report. F Prime Capital has over three billion under management and a storied history investing in companies from Alibaba and Prosper to Toast and Flywire. While they maintain a breadth of expertise across industries, having grown out of fidelity, their domain expertise lends the team to fintech. And we were able to hear David and Abdul's thoughts on our rapidly changing ecosystem in the world of fintech. We spoke about neobanks, oversaturation, and vertical SaaS examples like one of their portfolio companies, Toast. David brought in his measured perspective on how fundamentally attractive businesses are still being built despite the trepid times. And Abdul brought his personal hot take on consumer fintech. So with that, we're excited to bring you David and Abdul. Hey, David and Abdul, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. To start with, can you give us a brief introduction to yourselves and a bit of background on F-Prime and the Fintech Index? Sure, Abdul, how about I'll start. Um, Maybe I'll introduce uh, F-Prime Capital first, but uh, we're an an investment firm that's been investing for over 50 years now. We've always had the pleasure of having a a single LP in the owners of Fidelity Investments. we several decades ago had the good fortune of launching funds overseas and 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 now are one of the, I'd say the largest and longest standing venture capital firms in the world. We have uh, funds in Europe, in London, uh, Mumbai, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Tokyo. Um, we like to say we were in fact the seed investor in Alibaba, which will remain as perhaps the best investment of all time that we all live in the shadows of. But it was also a great uh, statement of just being really early internationally before a lot of other VCs had done so. Um, and I manage our early stage tech fund in the Americas. Along with Abdul, uh, we are invested in enterprise software and fintech. Really love the intersection of the two of those, which we could talk about today as well. Um, and personally, I began my life in financial services with JP Morgan and then some time with BCG. <clears throat> and then was a part of two startups, one that I co-founded called Sensoria in the hardware space. And then a second company called Into Networks, which was backed by F-Prime Capital. And I got to know the partners uh, many years ago when they were on the board of Intu. And we were acquired by Softricity, it's now part of Microsoft. And I, I spent the next four years at Cisco and probably the biggest company I'll ever be a part of, but um, ran a, a, a large business unit uh, for Cisco for their part of their indirect channel business. And was invited to come back as an operating partner and then began investing about 15 years ago. Hey, Josh and Katie, thanks for having us on the podcast today. I've been an avid listener for a while now, so it's an honor to be on the other side and partaking in the, in the recording. Uh, like David, I'm an early stage investor at F-Prime Capital and based in the New York area. Uh, I've been with the firm for a little over two and a half years now, primarily covering fintech and vertical SaaS opportunities. Uh, prior to joining F-Prime Capital, I invested in emerging markets-based uh, fintech and technology startups and worked with a venture-backed uh, fintech company in the banking and payment space. Um, so, you know, in 2021, we saw a, a high volume of, of uh, fintech companies going public. And, you know, we had the opportunity to really think about, you know, uh, can we put together an index that really captures what, how these disruptors are, uh, are doing in public markets. So we put together the index initially starting with about 50 companies and it's grown over time. Some of them have been acquired uh, by private equity funds and some have been acquired by other 
traditional financial institutions or other larger startups. Uh, but we put it together so that you know others in the ecosystem, whether they're entrepreneurs who needed to just see how different spaces, different verticals in fintech were doing, or you know investors or others, other stakeholders in the financial services ecosystem who wanted to, a single place to get gather a lot of data around multiples, performance, things like that. Uh, and so definitely check it out. Uh, it's the F prime capital. Uh, F-prime index. And jumping straight into the report, one trend that you highlighted was that investors are shifting their valuation multiples away from the higher multiples that we see for tech and SaaS business models towards the lower multiples of traditional financial services businesses. Can you talk a bit more about what you're seeing with these valuations? Sure. It, it has been really dramatic, right? I think anybody, any fintech listener, you know, who's been paying attention saw how exciting it was in 2021. And then, you know, the F-Prime Fintech Index as one representation, you know, fell 78%, you know, over, over the course of 2022. So pretty dire correction. Um, I, there were, I'd say there are two things going on. You know, one was just macroeconomic. And as we all know now, with rising interest rates, there was the end of cheap capital, um, capital efficiency became more important than revenue growth, and that affected all tech stocks, right? So even the cloud index, which fell almost a little over 50% at one point, um, along with fintech stocks. So that hit all high growth tech stocks. Um, what is perhaps more specific to fintech and is, and is to some extent more profound, I think, is that public investors are looking at fintech stocks differently than private investors. And fintech investors have reappraised in many ways, re-rated um, uh, those stocks. And I think they're putting them into one of two categories. You know, one is this is a truly disruptive fintech company, which is going to you know change the very structure of financial services. And on the other hand, this is a really high growth, perhaps wonderful company with a new digital experience and a great product, but one that will eventually look and feel more like traditional financial services. So we are seeing that that change right now. We can like you know unpack a little of which companies are in which which of those two categories. Um, but that is accounted for um, you know valuation multiples as you as you mentioned falling from you know 11x uh, enterprise value to revenue all the way down to 4x. And in most categories, whether it's lending, wealth management, payments, the disruptors are now valued at roughly the same valuation multiples as the incumbents. So David, starting, I guess, with you, so given your vast experience and given your, your vast background, I'm sure you've seen a few business cycles, right? So my question would be regarding what is the contrast between this most recent cycle between 2021 and 2022 that just you just spoke to versus business cycles in the past, or maybe we've also seen rising rates, but, but might have had a different effect on either fintech or, or in the broader perspective on tech stocks? Well, I think by vast experience, you mean old, which so I guess I'll appreciate the way you said that. But um, yeah, look, I, I I have lived, you know, at least the, the dot-com uh, boom, as well as the 2008 crisis, which was, a, you know, a very different type of macroeconomic correction. Um, and, you know, I mean, in some ways, like Josh, you know, they're, they are similar in, in some superficial yet important ways, like, you know, startups are running out of money. And that is like, may sound silly to say, but that is a fundamental problem. A lot of money was raised. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there is still a lot of money on the sidelines, but the fundamental issue is, is how the capital was spent. 
Um, but I think the main difference is, you know, especially if you compare this to like 2001, like there are a lot of very profitable and uh, economic business models. These are not eyeball businesses by and large in the, in the fintech world. And I think the, you know, the problem was just there was a lot of uh, inexpensive money over the last you know, five to seven years that allowed a lot of me too businesses to be built. And, and so we have many versions of the same model um, chasing after the same customer base. And that ultimately, you know, it ultimately creates a problem in the market, you know, when when the music stops and when when capital becomes expensive again, as it has now. Um, but, you know, there are businesses, you know, businesses like Toast and Flywire and Bill.com and Adyen that um, are, you know, really fundamentally attractive businesses, businesses that we think have, you know, many a decade or more of strong growth. But I'd even say, like, even some of the challenge businesses, like the neobanks, like Moneyline or Chime, like, they have reasonable unit economics. It's not that they were flawed business models. The biggest problem for them is just they're very fragile in a rising rate market and in a slowing macroeconomic environment. And since they make you know very little money per person per user, they really need scale, you know, to become overall economic. And when they can no longer grow, they don't have the capital to grow really quickly. They they also don't produce a lot of cash, and that fragility is showing in the market today. Um, but I do think you know that's quite different, you know, from from the from the past in terms of the quality of the business models. Um, I'll say one last thing on this, which is just I think not notwithstanding, like the correction is going to be difficult. You know, um, I think Abdul and I and our partners look at 2022 as the calm before the storm, and 2023 for private markets will really be a challenging year as as companies finally come up for need to raise additional capital, and um, and you know we're we'll be dealing with you know a thousand or more startups kind of in this challenging situation. Yeah. So you said there's a bit of a differentiation between the valuations, between the valuation that private markets give these startups versus public markets and kind of 2021, 2022 was a real evaluation um, that public markets got to chime in. Um, why do you think that has been the case that there's that disparity between valuations and, and is that trickling down in a substantial way, like on a one-to-one -one, you know, basis? To private markets and um... yeah, I mean, there's definitely a closer correlation that we've seen between kind of what happens with multiples in public markets and late stage companies. We saw that in 2022, uh, but over time, I think as early, it might start impacting early stage companies as well. So we'll, you know, time we need a little bit more data to be able to see that. Uh, however, you know, when looking at the fintech index, you know, the multiples dropped from 11x to 3x uh, over the last year, and I think part of that is you know established capital efficient companies, especially incumbents, see less variability in their multiples. Many of those incumbents have been probably listed for decades and you know, analysts and other investors have had time to really understand their business models, uh, projections and things like that. Um, however, over the past year, public investors have just really refocused more on profitable growth over rapid growth. So as you see more fintech, fintech companies going public, uh, you know, investors are starting to think about, you know, how profitable are you? When is, what, what is your timeline to profitability as well? So those begin to matter. And I think when, when you go public is really when the rubber hits the road and you're going to be compared to other, you know, models that investors are really used to. Um, so I think that's why you see some of the fintech disruptors that have gone public trading at discounts to incumbents. 
and 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 some of those have to do with you know the metrics that they have relative to to the incumbents. Um, you know, when we did our analysis looking uh, at the benchmarks that are at the end of our report, you know, it, it was surprising to see you know progressives progressives loss ratio in the insurance segment relative to some of the recently exited insure uh, tech disruptors uh, such as Lemonade and Hippo, which have over 125 percent uh, loss ratios. So there, you know, in many ways, uh, you see some of the disruptors, you know, are still fine tuning their business models. But they're paying out more in claims than they're, than they're receiving in premiums for now, and so all those things really impact how public investors are looking at the at the companies. I mean, another well, an example to add to Abdul's insurance is you know on the lending side. I think we we see the lending category as a whole is probably one that public investors have decided, even if online lending is attractive. Um, in the end, those it is overwhelmed by traditional lending, you know, forces, which are largely what's your cost of capital? Do you have a durable source of capital? And what are the bar, you know, borrowing default rates? And when you look at it through those three lenses, you know, whether it's a firm or upstart or or others, like those two are are fragile models in the sense that co cost of capital are quickly going up with interest rates. Uh, none of those players and very few fintech lenders have deposit bases, so you know they don't have a stable source of capital, and they tended to succeed in a good way by by targeting borrowers that maybe were thin file or you know higher risk but unable to get the same kind of loans elsewhere. But those three things add up, and and you know I think the market is saying, look, not only are you a lender, but we're going to give you a discount for traditional lenders because of those three factors. I'd love to chat more about the economic front as well. So obviously, we're currently in a period of major macroeconomic uncertainty with the Fed expected to continue to raise interest rates to cool inflation. What fintechs do you think will benefit the most from these rising interest rates? Yeah, uh, so banking and wealth management startups that hold customer cash balances or float are benefiting from the recent uh, rate hikes. Uh, an example of that is Robinhood saw 100% year-on-year growth in net revenue income uh, despite seeing a one-third decline in monthly active users over the same period. So that's one example. Uh, and, and we're starting to see similar things happening uh, for, uh, for, for both banking and wealth management startups. Abdul, you said uh, wealth management and asset management is actually being benefited by rising rates. Can you tell me a bit more about why? Yeah, uh, so I guess it's similar to the Robinhood example, where you, if you're holding customer account and customer cash balances in between trades, or you're sitting on that float for a while, then you're able to earn interchange. Uh, you're you're able to earn interest on that uh, on on that balance. Uh, so that's one way, especially in a rising rate environment, that you know, Robinhood and others have been able to generate additional revenue that they previously weren't able to do in the same manner. Got it. And have we have we actually seen that? Because I would. Maybe my assumption is wrong. My assumption would be that oh, because so much of the revenue comes from payment forward or flow or trading in general, uh, the fact that there's rising rates means that customers would shift their funds to some sort of high yield account or something like that. So, so that's just kind of what, what pulls my interest is saying, well, hold on, people are trading less, but I guess you get the the securities lending or or any sort of lending off the off the customer balances, but. Um, kind of what what have you seen with that have you if you've seen anything specific there yeah no that, that's a that's a very fair point there's definitely you know there is there's been a decline in active customers in in on Robinhood and platforms like that uh, 
but there are people who are still opportunistically waiting for the right time to get back into the market, right? Uh, and, and so transactions are still going to occur. And in between those transactions, they're probably going to have some money left on, uh, on their accounts uh, that, are not, uh, that are sitting and earning interest, or Robinhood is earning interest on their behalf. And, and so that's one way that they're making revenue. I was going to say, Abdul, you might talk about Charles Schwab too, and uh, like what, what it looks like for them. No, in, in very similar form, uh, what we noticed is that Charles Schwab also, uh, similar to Robinhood, had, was making a decent amount of revenue from customer balances. Let me just pull up this So Charles Schwab saw a, a significant increase, almost a third uh, in terms of net revenue income uh, increase over the, the third quarter of 2022 relative to the year before. So very similar to, to Robinhood. You know, they saw they had balances that were sitting there, folks waiting to trade. And they're able to earn higher interest on those balances. Interesting. I, I wonder, and I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, if customers, now that people are starting to, let's say retail investors or consumers in general, are used to seeing higher interest rates, are going to start to demand a portion of this interest revenue so that, that they're like zero interest account at, at Robinhood for their cash balance. They're going to say, hey, I, I want at least 50% of that or 60% or you know, pay me 2.5% APY or something like that. I don't know if you've, if that's something that you guys are tracking or thought about. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely you know there's a lot of options out there for customers. I remember when Ally, you know, a few years ago, even in a low interest rate uh, environment, they were coming out and saying, "Hey, we'll give you you know one percent, two percent interest on 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 your savings." Uh, but you know, there are certain criteria. You know, there might be a lockup period for for that capital. There might be certain uh, limits in terms of minimum balances that you have to have. So there's definitely factors that lead to kind of the inertia to move funds from Robinhood uh, into a, a different platform. But ultimately, it also comes down to you know the the trader, you know the the customer that Robinhood uh, is going after is someone who wants to actively trade. They want to be in the market. They want to take advantage of uh, all the different products. You know, stocks might be you know, uh, going in a certain direction, but there's options, you know, there's crypto. Uh, so there, there's, there's more products, there's a wider product suite that enables them to retain the customer and, and, and get them to, to use different uh, offerings that they have. I mean, here too, I, you know, I think Robinhood is also an example of like, you know, look, they, they did an ama- built an amazing business, you know, that grew incredibly quickly and attracted a generation of, of new investors, right? And, yeah, their specific type of investor that was you know going there first, but they they proved that there was a real untapped need, and their if you look at their revenue mix, as Abdul is alluding to, like it is rapidly diversified, right? And the question is, uh, does it diversify fast enough, you know, to survive these challenging times? But just two years ago, eighty uh, percent of the revenue came from PFAF, which is payment for order flow. And today, I think it's about 40%, you know, comes from payment for order flow. So, and it's not because it's shrunk uh, so much as the fact that other sources like, you know, commissions, options, crypto trading, interest income, you know, all picked up. So again, some of these things are races against time when you have a down market and just how they manage things. But I think uh, we would say, you know, as attractive as Charles Schwab is as a business, and it's very attractive, and even half its revenue looks more like a bank with interest income. Um, you know, there are there is a pathway for Robinhood to get there as well. I'd love to talk about the path forward for some of those fintechs that you said like will be hit hard by this, like beyond the short term need to buckle down and weather this out. What should these fintechs sort of focus on, and how can they adapt to this environment? So, 
I mean, I think you're right. It's about buckling down, but there's probably three categories within that. You know, some some just need to slow slow growth, trim costs, and do what they set out to do. And I think I would put the B2B SaaS plus payments models in there, the vertical SaaS models, the ones with recurring revenue streams. So, um, you know, I mentioned uh, Toast and Flywire. Those are, were two F prime capital early investments. But other players like uh, Bill.com and, and Avalara and others are great examples of like, they have great models, they have recurring revenue, they just need to kind of uh, fit for purpose for the new capital market order. Um, I think wealth management is in that category too, in the long-term sense. Uh, even Coinbase, if it were not hit so hard, you know, by uh, the crypto winter, like has it in an attractive business model that that just needs to be right-sized for now. The Second category, there are the you know, the ones with good models, but structurally exposed to macroeconomic cycles. So prop tech would, would be a good example, um, especially prop tech lenders. You know, there is they they have to ride out the storm, and even though there are still good tailwinds, like the consumer desire for home ownership, the desire for more digital buying, home buying experiences, there is no way to get through this without a severe like cost. You know, structure reduction and very possibly M and A needs to find scale, and then, and that's actually not different than it is for the traditional incumbents in that space. You know, if you look at ICE or Ellie Mae, Black Knight players in the in the mortgage space, like they go through the same thing, even though they're 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 they've been around for thirty years, but they kind of go up and they go down with the cycles. And then the third category is probably just some need to rethink business models. You know, they were built for cheaper money powering fast growth. And when now that that has stopped and stopped for the foreseeable future, they have to move very quickly, you know, to restructure for durability. And I think, you know, the neo banks are an example of that, as I mentioned earlier, like, they don't have a deposit base, they they tend to have fairly limited product offerings, right, they rely on debit interchange. And those two things, through partnership with banks, through acquisition, um, may be necessary in order to to kind of get through this period of of uh, slower growth uh, time frame. So uh, Abdul, I know you have a an interesting take on neo banks, and I know we touched on it a bit already. Um, just based on the unit economics, um, you know, what kind of what is what are your thoughts here in terms of how neo banks move forward, especially considering a rising interest rate environments and the fact that they don't have access to customer funds or client funds the same way that a bank does? Yeah. So maybe uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take this in two steps. The first one being why were you know, investors ascribing high values to uh, neobanks to begin with, and then go into the, the, the question around unit economics. Uh, yeah. So there were a few reasons why I think investors were ascribing high values to neobanks. One, they were capturing users very rapidly by offering consumer-friendly consumer hooks greater transparency and a much better UX relative to what was available in the market. Uh, they also had a much lower uh, relative customer acquisition cost with many opportunities to layer new offerings over time and increase the, the lifetime value of those customers should they be able to retain them. They also expanded the customer base and were reaching previously unserved or underserved populations and doing so in ways that incumbents were uh, not able to do up to that point. You know, and, and I think, you know, over time, there are, very, there are numerous large banks in the U.S. I can't see a reason why we cannot have uh, a few large, uh, largely trade, large traded new banks that are publicly listed and profitable over time. Uh, if you think about it, you know, it's a matter of time. Um, some of the largest banks in the U.S. have had hundreds of years to get to the position they are today. 
And the oldest new bank is a little over a decade old. So I think they need time to mature, to continue to grow within their with their customers as they earn higher wages and, and continue to offer uh, and, and later on new products. So that's one reason why I think private investors were ascribing high values to new banks. Um, and as you think about you know, the path forward, you know, especially the unit economics question, I think unit economics uh, is a very important factor, but it is just one factor uh, and it's not static. Uh, it can be improved over time as they offer new products and they target you know, new customer segments as well. And also by partnering with new banks, they were able to scale with less regulatory scrutiny and overhead costs. Uh, there'll probably be some shifts in, in that, especially as kind of the regulatory environment continues to, to change. And finally, I think there is, uh, you know, one piece around kind of being the category leader. Like if you're a new bank in Latin America or you're a chime in the U.S. or Revolut, I think there is a lot to be said uh, beyond unit economics as to why these, uh, you know, com- these uh, disruptors are, are continuing to get large, large valuations. When we look at the neobanks like Chime, they're making you know a lot of their revenue on that interchange fee. So does that mean getting that better unit economics? Are you thinking that's going to be kind of a strong cost exercise for them to try and improve those economics or really just once they get enough scale that brings it down to a place where it's more um, more spread? Yeah, I think scale is definitely a part of it. Uh, but also I think new products, uh, you know, going beyond just debit card interchange. Uh, and, you know, even subscription fees, you know, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, looking at what percentage of customers actually are paying, you know, monthly subscription fees and how do you change that to be able to get recurring revenue are some interesting, you know, questions that a lot of neobanks are, are thinking through. Makes sense. Um, switching gears a little bit. One thing that seems to be common across various sectors in fintech is the amount of saturation and explosion of new companies in each space. Is there anywhere where you think is undernoticed or underserved? I, uh, you know, so yes, of course, we're venture investors, so we we see opportunities everywhere. Um, I, Kaylee, I, maybe I would say we love vertical software and have been investors in that for a really long time. It led us to, and we got smarter through investments like Toast in the restaurant space, um, Connects Pay in travel, Flywire in education. So. I think as a vertical software investors, we see opportunities across verticals. Like we're not there. Some are bigger, some are smaller, but there's never really no end to the ability to take a new vertical or sector, ask about how will it be digitized if it hasn't really yielded to software yet. And then, you know, the key to like great businesses is finding the platform business within that vertical and, and what is exciting about what we're all doing these days with embedded fintech is that those platforms are just so much more valuable because they can incorporate banking, payments, lending into what they're doing. So uh, to name one, I will say travel tech. Uh, it is an area that at a prime we have gone very deep on. We have over a half dozen investments in the travel space from uh, companies like OTA Insights, which is around data analytics for hotel operators, like how should they price their properties? to ConnectPay, which is um, a, a effectively a bringing the Stripe-like model to the travel industry and helping agencies collect the funds and remit uh, balances to United Airlines and, and Hilton, as opposed to waiting for Hilton to collect the funds and then give them their commission. So really flipping the script on the travel industry. So 
but there's lots we think there are many opportunities in 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 travel as just one vertical right so kind of following up on the issue of embedded fintech it's been so hot for a few years now and we've seen a ton of competition pop up whether it's more in line with the vertical SaaS or deeper in the infrastructure side of things. Um, which of the business models, let's say outside of the vertical SaaS, let's say focusing in on the, I guess, enabling uh, vertical SaaS and enabling those um, more customer-facing uh, platforms, which business models do you think will prove the most disruptive? Do you think it's a winner-take-all kind of business where we see companies like a Stripe or a Unit just eat everything up, whether it's banking as a service or infrastructure, um, or do you see a bit more segmentation? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it help, it's helpful for listeners just to <clears throat> make sure we just define embedded fintech. Maybe everybody knows, but like in some ways, embedded fintech's been around a long time. You could think of like old old school versions of like a hotel selling you insurance, you know, before you are at the time of uh, booking your hotel, um, or Expedia doing that. And so some of it's not totally new. And at the same time, we're seeing some really innovative offers, you know, come about like insurance for a cloudy day when you're at the beach, right? Because um, embedded fintech is, is reducing the friction to incorporating these services. Um, I do think, you know, banking as a service is one of the most exciting and largest uh, embedded fintech opportunities. And um, I, I break it into two parts. Like, it's the application layer that's probably most exciting, which is like all of the software companies that will be beneficiaries of, of, of a player like Unit or Bond and where because they can now embed these financial services into their products. Um, so Greenlight's a good example. You know, Greenlight uh, is a banking for teens, but it's, it's essentially a software application for parents to manage their teens' money and allowances and chores, but they've they've embedded a banking product. And a bank account into that experience, right? That's a it's a classic example. Um, I think on your question of like, how will the banking as a service layer shape up? Um, you know, I do not think it's a winner take all. I think it's a winner take a lot, and I say that because um, you know some of the there are, there are some network and scale advantages probably in performing KYC, maybe some data scale in underwriting and processing. But and, and also to the credit, there's like 5,000 banks, meaning over time, their cost structures probably just go down, not up, since they're riding on top of a very fragmented customer base. But then again, there are 5,000 banks and those 5,000 banks means there's lower barriers to entry. And, and it is possible banks will partner with any banking, many banking as a service providers, creating just a lower barrier to entry for, for players to enter. Um, and so probably, I think there'll be several good, great businesses built in that space, and players like Bond, Unit, Synapse, are you know our our early entrants. Galileo is a much larger player in that space, um, but um, but probably not winner take all. And the one thing, I, the last thing I would say, is we we could talk about more this more, but like it's going to be tough for the next six to twelve months, and that's because we're back into a regulation regulatory environment, and the regulators got very focused over the last three months on the banking as a service layer and saying, look, if you're a bank, you cannot outsource your banking functions. You have the charter, you have to do KYC, you have to make sure KYC is done well, anti-money laundering is done well, and you can't say banking as a service provider did that for me. And I think the banks knew that, in many cases they were doing it anyway, but the regulators are putting a pause 
on a lot of those programs until a bank can can uh, kind of uh, pass the audits to say that they are doing those things. So temporary slowdown, long term, optimistic. A company that you mentioned that you're excited about is Toast. As I understand, you are an early investor in Toast. Can you talk a bit more about Toast's journey and move into fully vertical SaaS? Sure. Uh, you know, Toast is a tremendous story of vertical SaaS, and you know, the uh, I'll go back maybe to the earliest days. Like it was founded by three friends and co and employees from Indeca a core enterprise software business building databases essentially for for shopping it was acquired by oracle and they left and and uh wanted to start a business and i think their first attempt at the restaurant business was an online ordering app which they concluded was not nearly as good or fundamental as solving the real pain point for restaurant owners which was like how do i take orders and get paid um and steve papa who was the founder of indeca um backed that team they were he was the sole funder for a, a couple of years um, up until our our first institutional round where we we, we invested and um but helped them really build but i think most people maybe don't appreciate as much about toast it's like it's an enterprise software company first payment second and and that is a, a critical to their dna and i think why they succeeded because they had this insight that even though many investors and many people thought the, the restaurant space was crowded, there was already Square and Revel and Lightspeed. Toast Insight was that the full service restaurant was actually an enterprise problem. If you if you have uh, if you're a sit down restaurant, you have a dessert station, a cooking station, you know, multiple lots of waiters. Like that is a much more complex situation than a coffee shop. You know, where Square was was very functional, and so. They, with their DNA, I think they understood how to build enterprise grade software. They understood the go to market motion of selling and scaling really fast. And then they just made that business so much more attractive by embedding uh, payments you know, into what they do. Um, so that's the beginning of their story. And, and execution was phenomenal. And over time, because they were, the point of sale is really the central nervous system of a restaurant they had built a platform where they had per the permission to offer many more financial services so you know next really was payroll and they they now offer payroll to many of the restaurants um they've also entered lending so they have toast capital where they arguably have a much better underwriting model than any outside lender because they see all of the payments right they know how uh, they know who they would want to lend to and they understand how well a business is performing in in real time right not a month late or a quarter late so they're continuing to add on financial services the market today views them as more of a fintech company than anything else but the reality is i would say it's still if you really look at the net revenue it's half and half 50 percent enterprise software 50 percent fintech and um and i think that's part of the secret of how they started and why they're doing so well Cool. And one thing that stood out in the report, uh, going back to actually talking about Square and Block, or Block, let's say. So from the report, Block stands out as a company that has this really high take rate, um, especially for non-emerging markets payment company. And y'all kind of touched on this by saying, you know, because they're able to offer a lot more, you know, SaaS products to companies that are processing payments that allows them to take this high high take rate. So my question is how do you guys view 
the path forward for companies like that who are offering more and more SaaS products to kind of diversify away from interchange as interchange becomes a bigger question. Is that the path forward to kind of take this block model or do you see any other paths or any other interesting business models in that space, specifically in payments? So I think in many ways, this has a lot to do with the customer segment that Block is serving, uh, specifically the SMB category. Uh, unlike incumbents like FIS or, or, or Fiserv that are generally serving well-established global enterprises, Block and other disruptors are taking on high-risk clients and face higher costs to serve those clients. To make the model work, they need to, change, they need to charge more, and the industry dynamics at the moment allows them to, to do that, at least for now. Uh, this can be seen in one of the slides, uh, one of our benchmark slides, where we highlight kind of the net to gross revenue uh, analysis. Pfizer takes two thirds of the of its gross take rate, uh, whereas Block takes only forty percent. So Block charges a higher take rate, but their net is lower because of the cost to serving those customers. Uh, and and Pfizer charges a lower take rate, but they're able to you know net a, a higher percentage of that as well. Um, so I think in terms of the, the second question, David would love you to, get, to chime into this as well. I, I do think you know, that when you are a software-first vertical, ver- vertically-focused platform, you do have that luxury of being able to flip over new card um, you know, for, for your customers and offer them different fintech solutions, uh, as, as Toast did, and as others you know, like Service Titan and MindBody have been able to do. Uh, but there are a number of businesses that are inherently, you know, horizontal payments or or vertically focused uh, payment solutions as well. And I think it's a it's a different uh, approach to how they kind of uh, expand their revenue share away from just focusing on pay rates. Cool. And looking at, I guess, the fintech landscape overall, you mentioned in your report that to date, fintech companies have captured less than ten percent of the financial services revenue. Which segments are capturing more share from the incumbents and what do you expect to see going forward? Yeah, uh, so payments as kind of fintech's front runner has done a really good job of continuing to capture um, a larger portion of the industry revenues. And even then, it's still less than 10%. You know, I think payments is around 7%. We've seen a notch up from, you know, when we did the analysis last year, I think there's about a 1.7 percentage point increase there. Uh, and then, you know, brokerages, uh, when you think about in the wealth management space, have continued to capture a bit more, especially with the rise of Robinhood, Coinbase, uh, and others. Uh, but even then, you know, they were uh, they're less than five percent, and over the last year, they've seen a decline uh, in in their share of, of industry revenue. Uh, but there's there's definitely you know it, it, I think there's an ebb and flow, but the general trajectory is that you know these disruptors, uh, as they continue to mature, uh, are going to capture more of that of that revenue. But you know the key the key takeaway is. There's so much still left for them to capture. They're less than ten percent, and you know they're in the early innings uh, as well. I think the email add a comment that the the nuance underneath the headline of like all below, you know, mostly around five percent, all below ten percent, is that you know the classic Clayton Clay Christensen view of disruption. Right, is that the disruptors come in from the side and you know find something that is not as core to the incumbents. And payments, the you know, example that Abdul was giving is a really good example that you know mo- the top five newly public or at least uh, fast-growing payment disruptors, Adyen, PayPal, it's got old, but PayPal, Block, and, and that category, 
you know, they all started in digital payments and digital payments had tremendous tailwinds, right? We all know we're moving our lives online and purchasing more online. And they rode that wave in a, in a way that the incumbents just weren't as focused on that, Stripe included, right? That's where they were born by making it easy to do online payments. So if you add up the top five, like they are now larger than FIS or Pfizer and almost as large as uh, uh, have the combined market share of, of either one of those largest players. And so we do think like they're going to continue to ride those tailwinds of digital payments. And that's ultimately how disruption happens, you know, from the side, but through a really important tailwind. And, and, and uh, to conclude on that point uh, is around uh, there's so much payment, so much of payments still happen through traditional rails like ACH uh, and, 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 you know, checks and wires and so on. So, you know, when you think about where's the opportunity for them, it's probably not as much going after. Maybe there's some of it that's still going after the Fiserv's uh, and, and, you know, some of the offerings by FIS and Fiserv. But there's also a huge opportunity. And, you know, I, I know we'll discuss a little bit around kind of real-time payments and the opportunities there, but there's a lot of opportunity to still digitize so many payments that are not, that are going through with other rails. Yeah, let me try and with a quick question here. So on, on the real-time payments front, would you see that being offered by one of these, let's call it the incumbent of the fintechs in the payment processing space? Would you see that as an offering or would that be more of a cannibalization? Or do you, do you see someone coming in with a real-time payments you know, offering that's going to disrupt. Are you guys tracking any companies in the space? Yes, we are definitely tracking it. Uh, I mean, currently, less than one percent of the total U.S. payment, you know, is is going through real time payments, and a lot of that is through um, kind of the uh, the real time payments by the uh, clearinghouse. Uh, but federal government is going to launch this thing called the Fed now by you know kind of middle of this year, and I think there's a lot of opportunities for fintechs to offer a solution. Um, you know, for for their customers, you know, it doesn't make sense to have you know someone else manage all of these different payment rails and 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 offer you know something else uh, just for real time payments. I think there's an opportunity for you know for consolidation and to say, hey, you know, we'll help you orchestrate payments. We'll help you, you know, uh, you know, after offer these solutions to all your customers, regardless of which rail uh, they want to go through or whichever one is most economical. Uh, so we we we've been tracking. There's definitely. Uh, you know, it hasn't been launched. So there's kind of a pilot program that a bunch of folks in a sandbox that a lot of institutions and startups are going through. Uh, there's the likes of Jack Henry, which announced that they're going to have a solution. One of the bank cores, they're going to have a solution for that. Um, definitely the banking and service players are thinking about how do we offer this to our customers uh, as well. And and we've seen other solutions that are working with, um, that are working with credit unions and, and smaller regional banks uh, that have not signed up for the clearinghouse solution uh, who want to use uh, you know something something like this uh, and, and and equip them with the with the infrastructure to offer real-time payments for their customers as well. so we're we're definitely you know spending quite a bit of time in this space uh, and and you know excited for the launch of Fed now. I think when you think about other regions of the world, uh, you know real-time payments, we think about PIX in Brazil, UPI in India had a lot of uh, you know, took off re really quickly. And, and for us, you know, in the US, it's been five years since the clearinghouse was launched and, you know, we're only at 1%. Part of that is, you know, uh, consumers in the US have a lot of different ways to send money, whether it's through Zelle, Venmo, Cash App, you know, and, and other mechanisms. Uh, but there's still definitely an opportunity for more of those payments to, to become real time.
And Josh, you you hit it on the head though the the concerns of cannibalization, you know, and and uh, you know Larry and Antap Duel's point, like if the incumbent banks wanted to have real time payments, we'd have real time payments by now, right? The clearinghouse has been around long enough, and and it is clear that they they make so much money from interchange on other rails that they while they will eventually support it, it's not something that they're rushing to support, and that that again is a great reason for you know, startups to to fill that need faster. Cool. All right. Well, Abdul and David, thanks so much. This has been super informative. Um, I know I've I've personally learned a ton. And um yeah, thanks for thanks for coming with with so many cool ideas and so many cool takes. Uh we're gonna finish off with a lightning round. It's actually the first time we're doing this, the Wharton FinTech podcast, at least from my knowledge. Um but just give you know really short one sentence answer to um to the questions we're about to ask. Uh, all right. First off, uh, the fintech vertical that that's your baby that you're most passionate about. Payments. I mean, we just talked about real-time payments. So I'll, I'll say payments for me. And I'll say vertical SaaS. What's an emerging company that you're really excited about? Um, our latest investment, which is in Canoe Intelligence, which is, I think, a leader in... Um, extracting, normalizing, distributing data from private funds, a world that historically has been all paper, um, but hopefully someday will be all digital. Uh, on my end, I would say Canary Technologies, which is uh, kind of changing uh, you know, the hotel stack and kind of taking a verticalized approach. We love vertical SaaS, so Canary Technologies for me. Which podcasts are a must-listen in your guys' opinion uh, for our listeners? Obviously, the Wharton FinTech. Uh, so that's, uh, that's of course, everyone. Of course. <laughs> but also, you know, FinTech leaders, who's a former uh, FinTech, you know, Wharton Pod, FinTech podcast host, uh, and also the FinTech Blueprint, uh, you know, are a few of the ones that I listen to. Wharton fin, FinTech podcast. Any suggestions for content for someone looking to learn more? I'd say understand the plumbing. Like, there's some great material and now it is accessible if someone wants to invest in payments take the time to learn about the infrastructure how it works down at a plumbing level um i would say understand the previous waves of innovation there's always so much we can learn by looking back at history and speaking of looking back at history any top book recommendations um in general doesn't have to be about fintech also uh, I'll, I'll keep it to the more the, the tech side. Uh, the hard thing about hard things by uh, Ben Horowitz is one one that I would recommend. Yeah, I uh, earliest or I guess late last year finished a book called When We Cease to Understand um, by Benjamin Labatut, and I think it's a great story about uh, kind of the, some of the biggest brains in science, especially physicists like Schrodinger and and uh, Einstein and others, and just how many of their inventions, you know, were intended for great causes, had a great purpose, and had great purpose, but also had a lot of unintended causes, um, led to some horrific, you know, uh, outcomes. And so, um, I think that's uh, it's especially timely given what's happening around AI. I read it before, you know, ChatGPT came out, and after it came out, I thought like, oh yeah, this is the book for people who are uh, wringing their hands over Chat AI and ChatGPT. Right. That was my first thought was, uh, was, oh God, what, is, what does that book have to say about ChatGPT? Um, cool. All right. Well, well, thanks so much, guys. This has been honestly really great. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to chat with you. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria, and until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello. Thank you.